Leviticus chapter 11. If you want to flip there for a moment, we'll begin there today. Leviticus chapter 11. Leviticus 11, if you're new to the scriptures, it's the third book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. It is the book that is called Leviticus because it's named uh, having to do or pertaining to the Levites. But it's much more than that. As we began to study on Wednesday night, we discovered that beginning about chapter 11 all the way to the end of the book, chapter 27, it's not about the Levites, it's about the people. And it's about one thing in particular... The key word we talked about for the book of Leviticus is holiness, but the, the, the thing that it's about here is getting God's people clean. Getting God's people clean. Um, this summer, we kind of let a few things relax in our house. Let some things go, didn't worry about things, the schedule got really loose. The kids just kind of, we didn't watch how much, you know, Nintendo time there. We just kind of let them do the whole thing. Just relax, whatever. After two years of trying to get into our house, we just let it all go. Especially Hayden's hair. (laughs) Hayden's hair got so long and so bushy that one day I was just looking at him and I'm thinking, we could mop the floor with this kid. (laughs) And then I remembered, mop top. Mop Top was one of my favorite books when I was a kid. So I got online and I emailed my, emailed my mother and I said, Mom, do you remember that book? I think it was called Mop Top or Mop Head or something like that. Do you remember that? And you read it to me when I was a kid, but I didn't want to go get a haircut. She said, yeah. And so she sent me the name and, the, and the, uh, the author of the book. And I got online and ordered it. And I was holding off cutting Hayden's hair because I so badly wanted to read him Mop Top before we cut his hair. It was just too classic. But the book was delayed and delayed and delayed. And finally one day Cheryl said, look, if we don't cut his hair, I am going to mop the floor with him. So we went ahead and cut his hair. But yesterday the book arrived. So I sat down with Hayden and we read it kind of posthumously to all that hair that had been taken from his head. And as we read Mop I, re- I remember this book so clearly. It's this little kid who everybody called Moppy because his head was just this mass of red hair, just in all directions. And he looked like the head of a mop. And his mom finally said, today you're going for a haircut. She gave him some money and sent him off, six years old, tells you when the book was written, sent him by himself to go to the barber shop. Okay. So he goes to the barber shop, he gets that, and on the way there he, he runs into several things. He sees a little poodle whose hair is just as long as his. You can't even see the poodle's eyes. And Moppy says, well, I think this poodle needs a haircut more than I do. And this way he goes a little bit further and he sees a man trimming a tree, a palm tree. And he says, boy, that tree needs a trimming more than I do. And then a little further he walks by a lawn and this guy's mowing the grass. He says, see, that grass needs mowing more than I do. But finally he goes and he's about to go in to get his haircut and he just freaks out. He can't do it. So he runs next door into the grocery store and he hides down behind a barrel full of brooms and mops. And he's hiding back there. Along comes a woman. He's going to tell us the whole story, isn't he? Yes, I am. Along comes a woman looking for a broom. And she sees his head and grabs it and begins to pull up thinking he's a mop. And it scares him so badly, he runs right out of there, straight in, and he gets his hair cut. But here's the deal. On the way back home, he looks up and he sees that palm tree, which has been newly trimmed. And he says, wow, that looks great. What a beautiful tree. And he's walking beside the lawn, and it was cut perfectly and beautifully. And he said, wow, this, this lawn looks beautiful. And then he sees the little poodle. Someone had clipped the poodle. 
And he said, oh, it looks beautiful. The whole world just looked better, brighter, cleaner. To laptop. Because he finally got his own hair out of his eyes. He finally got some vision. Now, it's a kid's story. It's a precious story. It's a lot of fun just to read. It's really well written. But I tell you this story this morning because so many of us have our hair in our eyes. Or we come before the Lord and we are unclean. And so everything looks unclean. Everything is difficult to see. When you're not clean before the Lord, when, when you've got the hair in down your eyes, when you've got all this stuff in your life that needs taking care of, sometimes it's just hard to see what God is doing. What does that have to do with Leviticus? Well, the whole rest of the book is about getting clean. It's about being able to see the Lord for who He is. It's about having a vision for the Father. Cleanliness and uncleanliness is what the rest of the book is about. And in chapter 11, verse 45, 46. Verse 46, he says, This is the law regarding the animal and the bird and every living thing that moves in the waters and everything that swarms on the earth to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean and between the edible creature and the creature which is not to be eaten. It's not just about food, God says. It's about making a distinction between what's clean and what's unclean. Now, an animal that chews the cud and has a divided hoof is considered clean, like a cow. Okay? An animal that is a cud chewer but has an undivided hoof, or maybe has a divided hoof but doesn't chew the cud, that animal would be called unclean. You're saying, why? Well, like a camel would be an unclean animal. A cow would be clean, a camel would be unclean. Don't eat camels. I don't know if you've been tempted to eat a camel lately. Some of you may have been tempted to smoke a camel. Probably shouldn't do that either. <laughs> but the bottom line is, and listen to me on this, and understand this, God is never arbitrary. He is always intentional. Even the animals that he chose, and we saw this, we began to see this on Wednesday night, we're going to see it more this next Wednesday night. Even in the specific animals that he chose for clean and unclean, there are pictures for us. Where we can see God's intention in how we live our lives. Where we can understand God's direction for us. He doesn't just pick things out of a hat and say, oh, camel, it's a funky looking creature, make it unclean. He says, no, there's a reason. And there is a reason for every single thing God does. A reason for all these regulations. He is drawing a line of distinction for the Israelites so that they can understand there is right and wrong in the world. There is clean and unclean. Now I know a lot of you students know that school starts this week and you've been looking forward to it all summer long. And Thursday, as I studied for this morning's lesson, I was surrounded by the sounds of cleaning. The vacuum cleaner was going, and the washing machine was running, and I just, it was all kind of around me, this getting ready, getting everything settled. And, you know, I, I told Cheryl, so you're getting ready for school to start. She said, no, Reggie just made a mess. That's why I'm, you know, vacuuming. Take care of that. But the whole house was getting ready, getting clean, getting started. And that was the one thing that I used to love about elementary school. Not so much about junior high school, junior high and high school, but elementary school, I always got a clean start. Every year, it didn't matter how bad you did the year before, if you barely got through it, just passed. <laughs> and you came back, it was a fresh start. You could be, that year, the best kid in the class, the smartest, the brightest, the most popular. You always had that opportunity. And then, of course, you go through the year and you blow it again. But the next year, <laughs> fresh start, fresh and clean. 
And that's the wonderful thing about the Lord is He wants to give you a fresh start. He wants you to be clean. And you might say, I don't feel so clean. Well, you're probably right. You probably aren't so clean. But the Lord, the Lord wants us to be clean. The older we get, gang, the more we recognize how truly impossible it is to make the grade and to stay clean. But if you feel unclean or unworthy this morning, I think God has a word for you, and I want you to listen carefully to this. Acts chapter 10, verse 15. The Lord says, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. What God has made clean, don't you dare call unclean. What God has called righteous, don't call it unrighteous. What God has cleansed, don't you dare call it unholy. Now, if you uh, also happen to be sitting here today, as my dad used to, say, used to say, fat, dumb, and happy in your cleanliness, in your holiness, in your righteousness, if you're feeling really good about yourself this morning, God has a word for you today as well. But let's pray and we're going to get into these things. Father, I pray for insight. And I pray, Spirit, that you would speak to our hearts. I pray that your word would get in where my words cannot. And your intentions for us will be heard over the clamor of our lives. I pray, Father, that you would give us a fresh perspective and a clean start today. And help us to see you in new ways. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want us to leave the Israelites now. In Leviticus 11 at the Sinai, and I want us to move over to Joppa. Acts chapter 10. If you'll flip in your Bibles over there, we're going to spend the rest of the morning there. Acts chapter 10, for we see a parallel passage to the very one that we just read about cleanliness and uncleanliness, about unclean animals and clean animals. And I want to leave the backdrop of the clean and the unclean laws and shift over to see what God is about to do. He is about to, Jen used the phrase paradigm shift last week. God is about to, in the life of Peter and the apostles in the first century church, he's about to cause a seismic paradigm shift. He is about to rattle their cages, and amazingly, he doesn't ask anyone's permission to do it. He just often does it, as God so often will do. He goes, and he, well, let's read the story. Chapter 10, verse 1. The Bible tells us there was a man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort, a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. At about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come in and said to him, Cornelius, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, he said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now dispatch the men to Joppa and send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He's staying with a tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. And when the angel who was speaking to him had left, he summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were his personal attendants. And after he had explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Unbelievable. Just when the Jewish church was doing so well, Without anyone's permission, again, God goes and dispatches an angel to an unclean Gentile, a Roman centurion, no less. And he didn't run it by the apostles. And he didn't call together the council of Jerusalem. He just acted without our permission. I mean, who does he think he is? 
When the church first began, gang, it mostly began as a Jewish movement. Some of you may know this. When Christianity first hit, the twelve apostles, eleven, were Jews. And the church began, even in the synagogues meeting, it was seen by many as kind of an offshoot of Judaism, a sect of Judaism. And so as it spread, the Jewish people just found meaning, completion in their faith in Jesus. And it continued to spread all over Jerusalem. Got really good and comfortable and big. But then God dispersed the church and finally they went out into areas like Samaria. There were some half-Jews there, but still Jews, still some Jewish blood running in them. So the Jewish church was growing and doing very well. And then God does the unthinkable. He goes off and invites a Gentile to get into the act. And like I said, he causes a shift for the church. It's pretty stunning. The first century church was confused. They were upset. They didn't get what God was really going to do. Even the early Christians themselves, they didn't realize that God's salvation was this epic. They thought it was more limited. But we really can't blame them. Because oftentimes God goes and does things we don't expect. Oftentimes He does things, again, without asking our permission, without checking with us to see if it's all right. Rarely does He ever stop to consult me, and I have to ask this question why do I assume that He ever should? Why do any of us ever get to the point in our lives where we look up at God and say, What are you doing? I don't get it. You're not making sense to me. I don't think this is quite fair. You didn't ask me before you threw me into this situation. Why is this happening to me? You should have stopped. You should have consulted me. Well, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15 describes the Lord Jesus as He who is, who is the blessed and only Sovereign. Sovereign. The King of kings and Lord of lords. Isaiah 55, verse 8, a verse we quote a lot. For my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 25. The foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men, and yet over and over and over we question the sovereignty of God. I want to give you a few things to write down this morning in understanding how God works with us and makes us clean. And the first is just to know this. God functions with sovereignty. He functions with sovereignty, not with permission, not with checking out human will. He does what he is going to do. Why? Because he's God. Because he's sovereign. And because he does know all things. He has a handle on where the future is headed. And so he acts his way. We want God to explain himself, and then we'll believe. He wants us to believe before he explains himself. And there's an important difference. Keep your finger in Acts chapter 10. You've got to look over this just real quickly here. The prophet Habakkuk. Habakkuk, toward the end of the Old Testament, and we, uh, we've been having a lot of kids being born um, among the Bridge Fellowship here, and, and I, I've always thought Habakkuk is just a great name. So if you haven't had a child yet and you're going to, Habakkuk. I mean, that's, a, that's a name you can really call down. Especially if, you know, your child's in trouble. Habakkuk! It's just a kind of hey sound. It's good. So anyway, Habakkuk, chapter 1, verse 1. Listen to what Habakkuk's dealing with here. Because the whole oracle, the whole prophecy, this little three-chapter prophecy of Habakkuk is him finding out some distressing news and trying to figure out how to deal with it, okay? Chapter 1, verse 1 says, The oracle which Habakkuk the prophet saw. How long, well, Habakkuk is talking, How long, O Lord, will I call for help and you will not hear? I cry out to you, violence, yet you do not save. 
Why do you make me see iniquity and cause me to look on wickedness? Yes, destruction and violence are before me and strife exists and contention arises. Therefore the law is ignored and justice is never upheld. For the wicked surround the righteous. Therefore justice comes out perverted. Why, Lord, is all this going on? Habakkuk's looking out over the people of Israel. This is prior to them being taken into Babylonian captivity. And he sees the whole nation is a mess. And he's frustrated. And he's praying, Lord, I don't understand. Why are you allowing all this wickedness, all this violence? Why are you not acting? Why are you not engaging? And God answers him. Verse 5. Look among the nations. Observe. Be astonished. Wonder. Because I am doing something in your days. You wouldn't believe it if you were told. Even if I explained myself to you, Habakkuk, you would have trouble believing it. And then God goes on through the rest of chapter 1 and chapter 2 to lay out for Habakkuk what he's going to do. He's going to take Israel into captivity. He is going to reduce Judah to a slave people. And Habakkuk responds in chapter 2 and says, Wait a minute, Lord. I mean, I, I know I said there's violence and wickedness in Judah right now, but I don't really, I, that's not what I was looking for. What are you doing here? He goes from being confused to being utterly perplexed. Look at chapter 3, verse 16. Chapter 3, verse 16. You will be filled with disgrace rather than honor. Now you yourself drink and expose your own nakedness. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you, and utter disgrace will come upon your glory. For the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you. And the devastation of its beasts by which you terrified them. Because of human bloodshed and violence done to the land, to the town, and all its inhabitants. What profit is the idol? Am I in chapter 2? Skip over to chapter 3. What do you think of? See, he's telling Habakkuk all this bad stuff. Like I said, so I'm right. Chapter 3, verse 16. Now Habakkuk's responding and he, he is completely freaked out. He says, I heard... And in my inward parts trembled. At the sound my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones. And in my place I tremble. Because I must wait quietly for the day of distress. For the people to arise who will invade us. He realizes bad news is on the way. But Habakkuk, and this is amazing, goes on and says, Though the fig tree should not blossom, and there be no fruit on the vines. Though the yield of the olive should fail, and the fields produce no food, though the flock should be cut off from the fold, and there be no cattle in the stalls, and we could even add, though the entire southern coast is laid waste, Habakkuk says, Yet I will exult in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord God is my strength. Literally, gang, it says the Sovereign Lord. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He's made my feet like hind's feet, deer's feet. And He's made me to walk on my high places. God is sovereign, which means He will do what He will do in His way, in His time. And the sooner like Habakkuk, we decide that we'll accept that and live in that, the sooner like Habakkuk, we can say the Sovereign Lord is my strength. God is my strength. I don't understand what he's doing. I don't know why he's acting in the way he's acting. But you know what? I'm going to trust him. Why? Because he is sovereign. Because he's God. And I am just a puny little human. 
He is sovereign. Well, back to our story in Acts. Look back over there, Acts chapter 10. God has sent hope to the Gentile, Cornelius. Across time, he's gone down, he's sent an angel, and he's now sent... You ever wonder, when things like this happen, I mean, these are real people in real times. Can you imagine what the servants of Cornelius must have been thinking when he was explaining to him what happened? Hey, listen, guys, an angel came and told me I need to send you to Joppa to get a man named uh, Peter, so if you'll go take care of that for me and bring him on back, that'd be great. (laughs) An angel told you to who, with what, with where, what? What are you talking about? These are real people dealing with real instances. But you know what? When you are touched by God, as this Gentile was, you don't ask questions. (laughs) You go. And so... So he goes. He sends off his, uh, his consort of people and verse 9 of Acts chapter 10 goes on. Now we shift. We're in Joppa. On the next day as they were approaching on their way, as they were on their way and approaching the city, Peter went up onto the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. But he became hungry and was desiring to eat. But while they were making preparations, he fell into a trance. Okay, so God functions with sovereignty, but the second thing to jot down is God, is sovereignty touches, sovereignty touches humanity. Sovereignty touches humanity. Watch this, Peter is so cool. I love Peter. He's so relatable, he's so tangible to the Christian condition, and he's still having trouble in his prayer life. He's still having trouble praying. Well, what are you talking about, Rick? Well, you may recall back in the Garden of Gethsemane, his intentions were really good. He was going to stay up and pray with Jesus who, who was praying on the night before he was crucified. And Jesus comes back and sees Peter there sound asleep. You ever fall asleep praying? You ever have the really good intention, Lord, tonight's the night. We're going to be together three, four hours. And you kneel down beside this bed. You think, no, I'm not going to kneel because it's hard on the knees. I'm going to lie down in bed. So you lie down in bed and go, okay, Lord, come on in. And the next thing you hear is the alarm going off. Oh, sorry about that. You ever just nod off in prayer in church? I did that once. Just once. I was a kid in elementary school. Again, I was sitting on the second row of our church in Southern California. It was in a high school auditorium with those tile floors. And it was the metal folding chair. So I was sitting on one chair, feet up on the other chair. Some of you have heard me share this. And I woke with a start and kicked the chair about seven feet out in front of me. You know, and the whole church looking at me. Just trying to pray. That's all I was trying to do. But here's Peter. He's gone up on the rooftop. And he's hungry. And his belly's beginning to ache. And his intentions are really good. He's there to pray. But he begins spacing out. Well, the Bible says he went into a trance. Rick, that sounds a whole lot more spiritual than spacing out. Well, stay with me on this. Matthew twenty six forty one. I almost hear Jesus saying in the background, Ah, oh, Peter. Peter. Man... The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Tired Peter in the garden, falling asleep in prayer. Hungry Peter on the rooftop, falling into a trance. Trance. The word is ecstasis. It's where we get our word ecstasy. And so people go, oh. So he really became ecstatic. So Peter all of a sudden started going, oh. And he saw the Lord. Ecstasis means... Ecstasis means out of the Greek word ek and stasis wits. He was kind of out of his wits. He was spacing out. He was kind of losing his sense. He's hungry. You ever spaced out in your prayers? I mean, not even fall asleep. But you're really praying. And then the next thing you know, you're thinking about washing the car. Now, how did I get there? Wait, I'm sorry, Lord. I'm back now. And we pray some more. And then the next thing you know, you're, you're mowing the lawn or something. 
I mean, you just can't say what anyone else is. It's just me. Thank you. Thank you. But sovereignty touches humanity. Right in the middle of all of this, as hungry Peter's up on the rooftop, God says, Peter, I have a vision for you. Now some of you may be thinking, okay, I still don't buy this extasis meaning that he was spacing out. I still think he was in a, some kind of a holy spiritual trance. Okay, well you can think that and that's okay. You can be wrong and be my brother. But sovereignty touches humanity. Why? Because, and jot this down number three, humanity waits with receptivity. And here's the beautiful thing about Peter. Whatever his mental state truly was, and we can argue it theologically, some of course would say it was because of the Spirit that Peter became ecstatic, and others would say he's just spacing out. But the fact is, the common and simple and very human man of God went up to the roof to pray. And because he went to the roof to pray, he received the vision. Whether he was ready for it or not. Amazing how that happens in the Bible. When God's people, as Mike read, pray. When they will just set themselves apart to pray. You may not have any idea what you're going to pray for. You may be spacing out. You may be hungry. You may be tired. But if you will set yourself to pray, sovereignty touches humanity when humanity waits with receptivity. And it's beautiful that Peter was up there waiting for lunch and waiting on the Lord. And God speaks to those who wait. Now I'm going to go back and just read this to you, but Habakkuk chapter 2 verse 1. Habakkuk makes this comment. He says, I will stand on my guard post, and I will station myself on the rampart, and I will keep watch to see what he will speak to me. And how I may reply when I am reproved. And then the Lord answered me and said, Record the vision and inscribe it on the tablets, that the one who reads it may run. For the vision is yet for the appointed time. It hastens toward the goal, and it will not fail. Though it tarries, wait for it. For it certainly will come. It will not delay. Had Habakkuk not been waiting, he would not have heard the Lord's response. He would not have had a prophecy for the people. Had Peter not been waiting on the rooftop, he would not have received a vision that this man Cornelius was sending some men to him. He wouldn't have known that. Had Daniel not been on his knees in prayer, he would have had no idea that the captivity was almost over in Babylon and that God was sending possibly the greatest prophecy in the Old Testament in Daniel chapter 9. If John had not been in the Spirit on that Sunday morning praying, we wouldn't have the book of Revelation. When God's people wait and pray, and like Jeff D'Angelo likes to say so much, there is so much talking. <laughs> so much talking. Blah, blah, blah. That's all we do is talk, talk, talk. Why don't we shut up? Spiritually speaking. And just pray. Peter had all these human tendencies, but had he not been in prayer... The clean might have continued to be seen as unclean. What does this have to do with clean and unclean? Look back at Acts chapter 10, verse 11. It tells us that Peter saw the sky opened up. Here's his vision. This is awesome. And an object like a great sheet or sail coming down, lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed animals and crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. And a voice came to him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. Peter recognizes that the sheet was filled with unclean animals, these four-footed animals and crawling creatures. He looks, the sheet's opened up, he looks inside, he goes, I can't eat that. 
That stuff's unclean. He knew Leviticus chapter 11 very well. He answers God like a good legalistic Jew. I will not eat unclean things. After all, this vision might be a pop quiz. God may just be testing my scripture knowledge here. So I better answer right. No, Lord, I won't do what you're asking me to do. And Peter, like so many of us, has a tendency to fall back when God is moving forward. For all the grace Peter had been given in Jesus, he still is seeking comfort in the law. So he drops back and says, no Lord, I I can't. I can't eat any of that. It's unclean. Galatians chapter 2 verse 11 gives us a little more insight into how Peter continued to fall back into the law. For Paul writes that when Peter came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. Those are the circumcision was Jewish Christians who said you can't be a Christian unless you're a Jew first. You've got to go through all the rites of Judaism and then you become a Christian, but you've got to keep the law. And Paul opposed Peter because Peter was slipping back into the law. Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 13, the rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, even Barnabas. Man, Paul was an amazing proponent of grace. But let me ask you a question. How receptive are you to God making an unclean person clean? Are you open to that possibility, to that concept? That God may make something that you think is unclean in your life, He may make it clean. Are you receptive to the Lord doing a new thing in your life? Maybe something you've never experienced before. Do you, like Peter, tend to cling to what you've known rather than to step out into the great unknown? Well, you may want to jot this down. I think it's number four. Receptivity brings or births liberty. Receptivity births liberty. We begin with God's sovereignty. He will do what He's going to do because He's God. But His sovereignty wants to touch humanity. And when humanity is receptive to that touch, to the Lord, liberty is the next thing that flows. And this is worth writing down. I didn't make this up myself, but it's so good. Legalism says, I've never done this. Liberty says, I've never done this before. I've never done this. This is a different thing. I'm not comfortable with that. This is not like my tradition. Or, well, this is new to me, but if this is what the Lord's doing, I'm there. I'm there. God in His sovereignty wants to touch humanity. He wants to touch humanity, and when humanity is receptive, we get this precious gift of liberty. Look at verse 15. Again, a voice came to him a second time. What God has cleansed no longer consider unholy. And this happened three times. And immediately the object was taken up into the sky. Three seems to be a number that works well for Peter. I mean, think about this. First of all, he denies Jesus three times. And then Jesus comes back after his resurrection and reinstates Peter to ministry three times. Feed my sheep, Peter. Okay, I'll feed your sheep. Feed my lambs, Peter. Okay, I'll feed your lambs. Tend to my sheep, Peter. Okay. Oh, okay. Okay, tend the sheep. Three times. And here we go again. God knows what works with Peter. And you know what's great about this? He knows what works with you. He knows Peter so well that he needs a three-time vision. Because after the third time, finally Peter starts to get it. He's still perplexed. But he's realizing God is doing something here. And he'll do the same with you. Some of us are a little slower than others in picking up what God's doing. 
I tend to place myself in the slower category, a little slow to move. But three times, God brings this vision. He knows you so well. He knows Peter so well. And God knows that a clean slate is liberating. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1 tells us it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. You might say, well God, your new stuff is not for me. I'm too spacey. Or God, you can't, he won't touch me. I'm too unclean. Well, what God has cleansed no longer call unholy. We look at our lives. And for the most part, we're completely aware that we are sinners. But God, in His magnificent, overwhelming grace, has called us clean by the blood of Jesus. 1 John chapter 1, verse 7 says, If we walk in the light, if He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of the Son, Jesus, cleanses us from all sin. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 9 says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Now listen to this list. Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminates, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then he says, Such were some of you. Were being the operative word there. Paul's writing to the church in Corinth and saying, Gang, a bunch of you were in this list. But what God has called clean, don't you dare call unholy. Paul says, You were washed. You were sanctified. But you were, and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and in the Spirit of our God. Now, all this to say, I believe God wants to do some wonderful things here at the bridge. We've been here roughly two years since the first Bible study started in, in the living room across the way. And God has done amazing things over the past two years. But I have been... It's going to take too long to explain all this. But I've been in a place the last couple of months where I believe the Lord is saying it's time for the next step. It's time to move forward. What does that mean, Rick? I have no idea. I'm perplexed. I'm not sure. But I think He wants to do something. I think He wants to move. And I've been praying, Lord, how do we continue to walk in freedom without being drawn back to safety? Back to those places that we're used to. Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, Paul says, You were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not turn your freedom into an opportunity for the flesh. But I say in verse 16, Walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. So are you receptive to the cleansing power of the Spirit of Jesus Christ in your life? Are you open to that? Are you open to the joys of liberty and freedom from the old ways of thinking and doing to wherever God may take you? Is it possible in your life that God may be wanting to do something different than He's ever done before? And you're just not used to it. Well, I want that, but I don't fully understand what it will all mean. Peter didn't understand it either. Look at verse 17. Now, when Peter, now while Peter was greatly perplexed in mind as to what the vision which he had seen might be, behold, the men who had been sent by Cornelius, having asked directions for Simon's house, appeared at the gate. And calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was also called Peter, was staying there. While Peter was reflecting on the vision, now he's gone from being perplexed to reflecting, thinking about it, the Spirit said to him, Behold, three men are looking for you. But get up, go downstairs and accompany them without misgivings. That'd be good to underline. Without misgivings. For I have sent them myself. 
And Peter went down to the men and said, Behold, I am the one you are looking for. What is the reason for which you have come? And they said, Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was divinely directed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. And so Peter invited them in and gave them lodging. And on the next day he got up and went away with them. And some of the brethren from Joppa accompanied him. Sovereignly, God had touched humanity, both Cornelius's and Peter's. And he's bringing the two together. And through this process he is offering cleanness, liberty to both men. To both men. Now I mentioned that the bridge has been here a couple of years. Two days, or two years and two days ago, I was greatly perplexed in mind. I didn't know what the Lord was doing. It didn't make a whole lot of sense. In fact, my plans were being waylaid in favor of His, and it didn't make sense. I started church out in the middle of nowhere with nothing. Many of you have heard me talk about this a lot before, and I've gone back to this vision, I've gone back to the fact that God wanted the Bridge Christian Fellowship to be here. And so, here it is. And I I look at each of you this morning, and I'm stunned that God has done this. But God wants to do so much more. We haven't even tasted what God really wants to do here. And I'm convinced of that. And I think the Lord is drawing us into, this is why I mentioned before, a season of prayer. We need to be praying. We need to be seeking the Lord's face in all things. We need to be running to the Father. Two years ago, I didn't know what God was saying when He said, Go. But if I've learned anything in two years, I've learned this, that whether I understand it or not, when God says go, we better go. We better move out. What does that mean for you personally? I don't know. Talk to the Lord about it. Find out. Lord, what are you doing? What does this mean for the Bridge Christian Fellowship corporately? I don't know. Let's be praying and seeking the Lord in all of this to understand. Some of you, some of you are Cornelius this morning. Some of you are the Gentile on the outside. Some of you wandered in the barn because you saw the door was open and you were afraid it was going to rain. So you said, I'll go in there. And next thing you knew. Some are just seeking Jesus for the first time. That's Cornelius. And God wants to make you clean. God has you here to make you clean. It is His great desire for you. Others like Peter need to step out to go forward in faith, biblically, boldly, confidently. But understanding that faith in God's grace is what brings our peace. And I don't have to know what my sovereign Lord is doing. All I have to know is He's doing it. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 14 I'll read this because I know there are those who would say, hang on, this idea of receptivity to the Lord, if we're just going to be receptive to the Lord, whatever the Lord wants to do, whatever He says, we're just going to go. Isn't that a little dangerous? And Paul addresses that. Ephesians 4.14, he says, you know, there are those people who are tossed here and there by the winds, carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. And this could well be a danger for the bridge. If we're going to all purpose to just pray and see what the Lord has for this church, it could be dangerous. It could make us uncomfortable. But Paul says the following. He says in Ephesians 4.15, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up. 
I wish it just stopped right there because it's perfect. We need to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. With the Word is our anchor gain. And grounded in Christian fellowship as our ballast and the Holy Spirit as our wind, the wind that drives us, we will not be tossed to and fro by the waves. We can trust in that. The Word, the Spirit, the fellowship of other believers. God will keep this church grounded, but I have to ask if you're ready to set sail. Are you ready to set sail and see what the Lord has for us?